I want to start by telling you a story. I was invited somewhere recently, and um, the invitation came a little bit indirectly. Someone invited me to come along to an event, and uh, when I got to this event, <clears throat> I was sitting at a table with somebody who ordinarily wouldn't come to an environment like this. They said very clearly and very quickly that they weren't spiritual in any way or shape or form, <clears throat> which of course intrigued me because I think we're all spiritual, if, even if our form of spirituality is not something that we perhaps associate with an organized religion. I think all human beings, all of humanity has a spirituality attached to them. So I began to ask some questions and we started to dialogue. And um, eventually we got to the point in the conversation where they said to me, what do you do for a living? Now, if you know anything about being a pastor, that's usually at the point where people stop being interested in you or they become quite aggressive and confrontational about anything that they think that might actually uh, look like. So um, I was a bit hesitant and I'm always torn. I must be honest with you. Do I just tell them that I am a, a life coach? Because I think I do that kind of sort of with some people, or, or indeed a lecturer. Now, I'm not referring to you, but my daughter always tells me that I keep lecturing her. So I figured that there could be some kind of leeway there. But I thought, no, I'll just tell them that I'm, I'm a pastor. And um, when I said this to them, the response I expected was, was not what I received. First of all, they didn't believe me. They said to me something like this, you can't possibly be one of those. <laughs> and began to unravel this kind of catalogue of reasons why that couldn't be the case. And to be honest with you, I was a little shocked, I was a little surprised, because they said things like this, you can't possibly be a pastor, you like a laugh. Now, I don't know what that says about people in ministry, but actually I was quite heartened by that. To think that I may not be a pastor because I like to have fun seemed a little odd, but I, I would take that. The other thing they said to me is, that you're normal. <laughs> How can you be a pastor? You're normal. And, uh, and, and they said it with that kind of emphasis. You're normal. In other words, they were bemused by the fact that I talked about ordinary things. When I left that particular event, I remember driving home. I was on my own in the car, and I began to reflect upon that conversation. And I realized that somehow, this person's impressions of people who belong to God or serve God in some form of ministry actually are, in many ways, a caricature of how the world perceives us as people who are in relationship with God. There is a perception regarding our lives that we're not fun to be around. Now, I've met some of you, and I think that perception is probably very true. <laughs> But not for the majority of us. Most of you know how to smile and have a laugh. The, the other perception is that people might think that you're not normal. Now, the jury has been out on that for quite some years for some of us. And we would love to respond back by saying, well, what is normal after all? Who wants to be normal? Well, if you're abnormal, you want to be normal, trust me. I've had many years of practicing that. How do I become normal, Jesus? What I thought afterwards in the car driving home for the few hours I was there was simply people's perceptions of Christians and people involved in ministry actually is sorely lacking any real clarity. I believe 
not only that, but actually, what does it say about us if that's how people perceive us? And more importantly, what does it say about the God that we serve if they think that those characteristics are part of what it means to be a spiritual person? So the person gave me their, their number, so I text them. And I said, would it be possible to meet up with you again? I think that it was great to meet you, and I'd love to have further conversations about what you think spirituality looks like. They agreed to meet, and hopefully in a few weeks' time, we'll meet and have a coffee together somewhere, and we'll be able to talk a little bit further about that. And I'm anticipating that there'll be many questions. Now, one of the things that happened when I was at the table with them is that they started to identify some other people that they'd met who claimed to be Christian, and actually they thought were very different to me. In fact, this is what he said. He said to me, the last person I met who claimed to be a Christian and a minister tried to tell me that I had a devil inside of me. I said, well, how did you feel about that? He said, well, a little bit confused because I don't remember inviting a devil to come inside of me. And he said, if he was there, surely I would be the first to know. I didn't get into it all with him. But I recognized that maybe well-meaning and perhaps trying to be helpful Somehow people were telling the truth, but somehow missing the point. And it's important for us to understand that that dynamic is something that we're going to experience more and more and more as the years roll on, because the world that we're living in is rapidly changing culturally, and somehow the church appears to be a little bit irrelevant, a little bit 50 years old in our thinking, and not very contemporary in our engagement. At the same time, I'm reading through the book of Daniel, and I realized that Daniel had similar dilemmas. He had the culture of heaven in his heart, he had a love for God, he had a passion for God's purposes and plans, and yet right smack bang he lived in the middle of a culture that was alien to that, a culture that resisted his spirituality and maybe criticized it, and most importantly, tried to alter and change it. So when it comes to the balancing act, and I think more and more we're going to engage with this, between our love for the truth and our compassion for people, we will consistently find ourselves in a dilemma. And here's what we need to remember about that. Truth without grace comes across as being mean. And grace without truth comes across as being meaningless. But truth and grace together are like medicine to the human soul. And I believe we, you and I, have a responsibility to balance our understanding of truth and indeed the compassionate heart of God for humanity by loving and accepting people the way they are with the hope that somehow any interaction with you might afford them the great privilege you've had to discover the God who can transform everything about them. Here's some of the things that happen to us in our current culture. We have uneasy questions around how we are meant to live. The first one would be something like this. What is my role as a follower of Jesus in today's consistently shifting culture? Now, if you're older than 20, you need to be reminded that things have changed quite rapidly in the last 50 years. I have a great re remembrance of a childhood where certain things were normal that now have become abnormal. There were certain things that were abnormal in my childhood that are now completely normalized. 
life has moved, culture has shifted, the world is a very different place. Now, if my cultural uh, settling and understanding happened in my childhood, you can understand that 58, why I struggle sometimes to find my place in the world. And not only that, not just in a natural sense, but in a spiritual sense, I sometimes feel like an alien on somebody else's planet. I have a belief in God, which remarkably causes me to be either interesting or foolish, depending on who I'm talking to. I also have a need and a desire to connect people with God, but for the life of me, sometimes I find that difficult to engage with because so often people are presumptuous about what it is that I'm going to say to them. They think I'm going to be judgmental or harsh or uncaring. And so eventually when we get past some of those nuances, we get into some real conversation. The other thing I've noticed is they expect me to peddle them church. I don't think I've ever invited anyone to church. Not because church can't be great, but because Jesus is a better invitation. I think people are not looking for an institution to belong to. In fact, if you think about that, they're trying to get out of institutions. What they're looking for is a place to call home, somewhere where they're accepted for who they are, somewhere where they're embraced in love. Every human heart is searching for that kind of reality. So when I'm communicating with people who eventually get over the big issue that I'm a minister, I start to talk to them about Jesus, not about church, not because I don't believe in church. I think church is one of the greatest institutions in the world, if not the greatest, when it's working well. The difficulty is some people are under the impression that church should be perfect. And the reality is, how can a place full of imperfect people be perfect? So most people get a little bit disconnected sometimes as a result of that. So what is my role as a follower of Jesus in a today context, which is constantly shifting and changing? Second question. Here's some questions just to think about tonight. How can I stand firm in my faith? and still be accessible and relevant to people around me who seem so different. A number of years ago, we were informed by the organization that were part of the denomination um, regarding an issue uh, connected to same-sex marriage that we, as, a, as an institution, as an organization, had decided that we would not be available to marry people of the same sex because of our deep convictions that marriage is a holy institution between a man and a woman. And within three weeks of those kinds of dialogues, I was invited by somebody to come to a gay wedding. And I was in a moment where I loved these people, these, these two young men that I had walked with for a little while in the course of my life, and I wanted to be part of what to them was a very special day in their lives. And I was torn as to whether to go or not to go because I had been given this mandate from my organization that some of those areas needed to be a little bit cautiously handled because this truth is a reality for us. The world wants us to endorse what they do, but actually I wasn't endorsing what they do. I was endorsing who they are as children of God, people born with the capacity to know him. And so really, I need to let you know that I went to that wedding. I went to that wedding and I prayed for them at the end. And I prayed that God would be gracious and kind and God would take care of the issues of relationship. Do I believe that gay marriage is right in the eyes of God? Personally, I do not. But do I believe that people matter to God? Yes, I actually do. 
And so we're torn sometimes. Now you can judge me or not judge me according to that. I want to tell you another little, can I confess? Can I fess up some things tonight? I worked in Bristol a number of times with girls who were caught up in the sex industry. And many times as a result of some of that interaction, they ended up finding themselves pregnant. And we would work very tirelessly with these young women to try and help them to go through with their birth because for many of them, the option to be free of the complications around that was to have an abortion. And there was one young lady called Gemma that I walked with and I shared with and I, I loved and I tried to see which she came and gave her life to Jesus as did some of her friends. And actually, in spite of our best attempts, she went and she had an abortion. And I need to let you know because I believe this is how I should respond to those things that I went to the clinic with her. And I sat outside and I prayed in tongues and I prayed God's blessing on her life. And I prayed that Christ would forgive her for the act that was about to take place. And when she got back into the car, she said this to me as we drove back to the church. She said, I don't know what it is about you, but there is something different about you. You don't judge me the way other people judge me. Now, do I agree with her decision? Personally, I think life is precious and sacred. And therefore, I would never make that choice myself. But then I have never lived Gemma's life. I've never been in Gemma's shoes and I've never had to put up with what Gemma has to put up with. And I believe that operating with that kind of compassion, even in situations where I find it very difficult to come to terms with the decisions people are making, actually for me, reflects the Jesus that I love and the one I desire to serve. Now, some people would say, weren't you endorsing her by taking her to the clinic? I'd say, if she caught a taxi, would the taxi person be endorsing her by taking her to the clinic? If she got on a bus, would everybody on the number 52 be endorsing her because they went in the same direction as the clinic? Now, we must be real about these issues because we face them on a day-by-day -day basis. How can I stand firm in my faith and still be relevant to the people who seem so different? from me. Another question, how should I respond when others say my Christian views are unloving? How many of us have had those experiences? Give me a wave if someone said you're harsh, you're hard. Give me a wave if you're alive, let's start with that. <laughs> if you have a breath in your body, just give me a wave. Just let me know that your hands are working, that's reassuring, thank you. In a world that falls for everything, if you stand for something, you can appear to be a bigot, judgmental, callous of heart, uncaring about humanity. I believe for us there's an invitation in this particular context to demonstrate the goodness of God and the truth of God in exactly the same levels and measures. It's a wonderful story in the New Testament where a lady who's dragged out of the adulterous bed that she's in is brought by the Pharisees and the scribes into an arena with Jesus where they are trying to trap him and trying to get him to, to um, move away from what is legally the right thing to do in their context, which was to stone that young lady. And the dialogue goes in the New Testament a little like this. Jesus says to her, where are your accusers? At the end of a time and a season and a moment where he'd asked this question of the others who were present. Let he who is without sin be the first one to cast the stone. And what I see with Jesus in this moment is this wonderful kind of paradox and yet absolutely breathtaking balance between grace and truth. Did he say to the woman, it doesn't matter what you do? No, he didn't. He said these words to her, go and sin no more. The truth will set you free. You're a sinner. Go and sin no more. 
But did he allow the law without grace to determine our outcome? No, he didn't. Because he asked those who were witnessing this event, if they had the capacity to judge her because they were without sin, let them be the first one to lift a stone to her. So I believe we're called in this season to walk with those two dynamics, to live with an absolute truth about what we are convinced is the reality of God's plan and purpose for humanity, but also to move in the power of grace to understand that all of these people that we're engaging with, whether they're hostile to us or otherwise, actually are children of God. And you might be the only person that they connect to in whatever season of their life they find themselves in that can demonstrate to them that God is a God of truth, absolutely, but he's also a God of love and grace and mercy. Someone said to me recently, in fact, it was the young man I was talking to at this event, he said, doesn't God love all of us? I had to say, absolutely, thank you so much for clearing that up for many people at the table that were sitting and listening to. He said, did he not send his son to die that all might be saved? Yes, that is true. But when we got into it, I recognized with him that while the provision for salvation has been offered to humanity, not everybody will appreciate it or embrace it or indeed come into relationship with God as a result of it. What he was trying to say is simply this. Don't we all just end up? in God's good books eventually, because God is truly good. I'm looking forward, as you can imagine, to the next conversation I'm going to have with him. So we're living in a context and a culture where we feel sometimes like aliens on a planet. We have a set of core convictions and beliefs. We have a mindset that's been formed through reading the word of God and discipleship. And we're living in an environment that's become increasingly hostile to anyone who has made up their mind about anything. In fact, can I just be bold? It doesn't really matter what you believe. You can be somebody who believes in this or that or the other. But if you're a Christian, you are considered by most people to be slightly dim, slightly lacking in intellectual prowess. Which is interesting because the person who said that to me believed that they were half person, half animal. But the reality was, she did have very hairy legs. So maybe <laughs> there was some truth in that. So why the Daniel dilemma? Because Daniel, like us, carried deep convictions about his God, Yahweh. But through a set of circumstances that were beyond his control, he ended up in a cultural context that was hostile in just about every which way possible. But listen, church, he managed to stay true to his God, and he managed to impact that culture with the kingdom of heaven. Let's read together. We're going to read from Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure in the house of his God. Verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, 
quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Now I'm sure the Lord will bless the reading of his word to us today. So let me highlight to you some of the tension points, some of the infiltrations that are happening in our lives currently as we live. The world around us has a cultural context, as I've said, and I've tried to say it as clearly as I can, that often feels like an alien landscape to us who are Christians. People value certain things that we don't value, and things that we value, they don't value at all. There is a a, a myriad of minefields for us and how we navigate our Christian spirituality in the midst of what is becoming a very hedonistic society. Secular humanism has become more prominent in people's thinking than any spiritual form of Christianity. And in fact, one of the, the, the fastest growing things is atheism in our nation because atheists are very evangelical in their approach to try and engage with people. And so we sit as a culture within a culture, as a people amongst a people. We sit with all kinds of people viewing us with all kinds of presumptions and all kinds of protests about our convictions and our beliefs. And we sit postured to be used of God to involve ourselves in transforming the culture around us to the extent where the kingdom is able to come in and through us and God can influence all kinds of things as a result of our surrendered lives. Our lives are not easy in this season. There are lots of tensions. There are lots of things happening that on a day-by-day basis are consistently shifting and changing. And in many ways, the church is not necessarily up to speed with the advancement of certain things in our world. And we're playing catch-up with some of the nuances of how things are changing. And they're changing to be adverse to our advancement and the advancement of the purposes of God. I want to highlight a couple of things here that may be interesting for us to think about. If you will mind reading with me again, verse 3. The king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Now, the first thing that culture is doing, and in fact, it's very evident when you think about it with me, I'm sure you'll see it too, is that culture is targeting our young and our greatest. There's a battle for the generation that has that kind of giftedness, capacity, and talent. All of the big institutions in the world are targeting that generation for recruits, whether it happens to be technology or commerce or or, the arts. They are looking beyond the generation that I exist in or came from to the younger generation, people in their late teens, early 20s. That's their target audience. That's who culture is trying to take 
so that they can change and continue to change culture in accordance with its plan and its purpose. Now, I'm going to say some things tonight that I think are slightly prophetic. You may think they're pathetic, but go with me in the first instance. When I look across our city, and I've only been here nine months, and notice I'm calling it our city because I feel very much a part of what God is doing. I came here with a belief that God had sent me to this particular church for his purposes, and I'm seeing some of the the treasure opening up before me. But I want to suggest to you that culture has targeted the young people of our city. When you look on the news, just about every report is around some of the nuances where that generation, the gifted, the talented, that those who are capable, strong, handsome, are being targeted by another culture, and consequently, they are starting to reproduce that culture in the way that they're being uh, engaging with the, 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 the things that they're involved with. If we are to be countercultural, therefore, we must also prioritize reaching out to that generation. It's important to us that we don't become an aging population that sit around telling stories around a campfire of the wonderful days when God did. We must be clear in our minds that if the enemy is seeking to target that generation, then he understands that when you catch them at that age, you have them for the rest of their lives. It's very difficult for somebody who is engaged with certain things around that very tender young age, very impressionable age, to actually ever truly be free from them, even if God was to connect with their lives. Often they are spending years and years and years going over what has happened to them, what's happened through them, trying to be free and trying to be healed as a result of it. If the enemy is targeting the young people of our city, if the culture around us is targeting the young people in the media, targeting the young people in the arts, targeting the young people in industry and commerce, then the church must rise in the call that God's placed on her life and actually lean towards that generation and start to bring hope and joy and freedom and liberty to those who are becoming, don't clap for me please, those who are becoming captive to another voice and another culture. Now, if you want to shift culture and continue the adventure of increasing that culture, you target the young. And young children, as young as six and seven, are being accosted outside of school gates on a regular basis from all kinds of people who are seeking to catch them up in their endeavors. And for us as a people, we need to engage with youth culture. Because if we don't engage with youth culture, a generation will be lost. And God wants us to move past maybe some of our own personal needs being met. Maybe we'd have to sacrifice certain preferences to allow us to be able to be focused on the generation that the enemy is seeking to destroy and steal and ruin, but God has a plan and a purpose to raise them up in a godly environment to bring life to this city. Now, when I was thinking about this, I thought that Jesus was very strategic in the way that he cultivated his kingdom. If you look at the New Testament, you recognize that the people that he engaged with and brought with him on the journey weren't people in their 40s. They weren't people in their 50s. The majority of the disciples were probably late teens, early 20s at best. He knew that to change the culture of this world, 
he needed to connect with youth, zealous, full of gifted and talent, albeit not always fully visible in some of them, and start to generate a cultural shift as a result of that kind of intentionality. For us to shift the culture in London, we need to shift our focus to the young people that live here. We need to invest greatly in reaching into their environment, not expecting them to come always to this environment. We might need to change the songs we're singing or the way we communicate. We might have to submit and surrender some of our likes and wants so that we can accommodate what God wants. Now let me ask you, are we clear about what God wants? Well, I believe that God wants to raise up a young generation of rabid lovers who have given their lives over to his purpose and his plan. Young people are not the church of the future. They're the church of the now. And it's important for us that we don't just pray for them. And we do pray for them. Every Wednesday, if you're here on a Wednesday, we pray for them. But we need to reach them. And to reach them, we are going to have to think differently we're going to have to have a strategy from heaven. We're going to need God to help us do that well. But it's possible to reach them because they're being reached by a culture around them that's seeking to take them off on a trajectory that will ultimately lead to death for some of them. When Apple launched its product, initially the iPhone, its target audience wasn't the 30-somethings, not even the 40-somethings, not even the 50-somethings. They targeted an emerging generation because they knew that if they could connect those young people, those late teens, early 20s, with the product, they would have that client to the rest of their life predominantly. There is something about this story that is prophetic to us as we start to understand. In the story, the king in question targeted the young men who were capable, strong, and indeed gifted, and he brought them into his context and he educated them for three years with the belief that they would become an asset to the ongoing development of the Babylonian culture. Do you have any conviction that there's some truth in that strategy? Is there a sense that maybe God could be speaking to us about something that might be a priority? Is there something in our heart that longs to look around sometimes in an environment like this, as wonderful as the frosting on my hair has become, and sense that there's a generation of people who are rising up behind us who are going to take the world for Jesus. Is there not something in our heart that says, God, use me to accommodate that cultural shift? Do we not want to see this city one for Christ? Is there not a need for youthful zeal, expertise, and indeed a fire in the bones of young people to see the kingdom extended in certain parts of culture and society. I suggest to you that for us, we need to think a little bit about some of those things and realize that while we have been enjoying God's presence, and I have no problem with that, I have every great delight in that, actually, the culture of this world has been stealing our young people and stealing a generation of young people over and over again because that's what a submersive culture like this will do. It will take those that can take ground for God. It will steal those that can steal territory for the kingdom. The second thing I want to highlight to you is this. <clears throat> the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine. 
from the king's table. I believe that when culture targets a particular demographic, what it does is it gives that demographic favor, okay, privilege. And I think there's something here that's important to understand. One of the documentaries I was watching recently about a young man who was caught up with the gang culture in London, he said something like this, I ended up with people who didn't diss me, but they respected me. Now, when I listened to that, I thought that, that doesn't sound like respect as I understand it, but, but I could see that what he was saying is this, I've searched all of my life for somewhere to feel that somebody actually valued my opinion, listened to my perspective, and actually even adhered to some of the things that I requested. There is a favor necessary if we are to bring out the greatness in young people. And the culture of this world favors young people more than it does people of my age. You know, if you're young and you're good looking, the world is your oyster. If you're my age and you're not so good looking, you've swallowed something and you've eaten it whole. And in my case, it was a double-decker bus. When you get past 55, you're almost written off in our society. Yes? You can be 15 and naive and you can be cherished and valued and celebrated and goodness knows Facebook celebrates everything from your latest meal to your recent hug. We're celebrating everything about you. Now, when this strategy became appeared to be the other day when I was reading around this, I realized that not only did this king go through the great extremes of extracting the young, the capable, the gifted, and the talented, but actually he did something very significant. He brought them into a place of relationship with him. He brought them into a place where they had influence. They had favor in his sight. Now, I'm going to say some things now, and I, you think I've been bad already. It's going to get worse. Okay, here's what we do with young people in the church. We say, we want you to come to this, this, and this, but actually, we're not that interested in your opinion. We, we're not, you don't really know what we know. We've been round the block for the last 50 years, we're the mature ones. We're the ones who have, you know, wisdom. Just because you've got gray hair doesn't mean you've got wisdom. I just need to say that out loud. Okay, some of the most foolish people I've ever met, myself included, have gray hair. But I say to everybody who makes an allegation like that, I say this, just because there's snow on the roof doesn't mean there's not fire in the grate. So what is it that millennials are looking for? But they're looking for inclusion. Yes? It would appear to me that if you go on Facebook, everybody's got an opinion about everything. And it doesn't really matter whether you're an expert or not. You can have an opinion about everything, except in the church. Where you have to be 60 to have an opinion. Some of us are waiting for that day. With eager expectation for it to come. Not only should we target this glorious group of young individuals that I believe God is going to bring into the church in their droves. There's going to be a great harvest that will come from that arena. What you think is impossible to God is possible with God. And he will use his people to engage in that kind of end time revolution. 
Some of the men that we've been praying for that are out on the streets right now will be sitting in these pews one day, worshipping Jesus with their families, giving their lives to God and changing the world in leadership. But we've got to reach out to them and we've got to be focused. And when they come, we can't leave them sitting in our pew for 40 years before we ask them, what do you think about that? Is there anything you can contribute to that? If we're not thinking like this, what will happen is we may reach these people, but those people will feel that they can't reach us. And so we have to have a more open dialogue in regard to shaping the future and engaging in the mission that Christ has set before us. And the king in this story knew exactly how to bring influence, exactly how to reach these individuals. He did it by showing them favor. There are a couple more things I want to say, and then I want us to pray together. The next stage in trying to infiltrate these young men with the culture of of Babylon was to rename them. Now, I've learned over the years that one of the biggest crimes in the church or in the world today is identity theft. The enemy has always sought to steal the truest identity of humanity, which of course we know is that we are created in the image of God. Out of love we were created, for love we have been created, that we may express love to the world around us. But in this attempt to redefine these young men's lives and bring them into the culture and create an opportunity for them to engage with that culture and improve that culture, each one of them were renamed. And the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach, and to Ayariah Abednego. It was customary to change the names of captives. Now, look at the transition that took place. The name Daniel means God is my judge. And he was renamed Belshazzar, which is Lady Protect the King. The first thing that the Babylonians did was to change the gender of Daniel's name, an inherent part of each person's identity. They also, in the changing of that name, shifted his focus from God to a human target. Our names have something very important to offer our sense of identity. Do you know, for years, I despised the name Simon. I am the third generation Simon in my father's family. My grandfather was Simon Foster. My father was Simon Foster. I am now Simon Foster. And we sighed a relief when Emily was born because we knew that we couldn't pass that name on. Although we did toy with the idea of calling her Simone just to be cruel, just to be cruel. And I did not want to be called Simon Foster because... My father's family, where the name came from, were farmers, and I wanted to be a superstar. I wanted to be somebody that was a celebrity. Way before celebrities were everywhere, they used to be somewhere, and I wanted to be a celebrity. 
And so the name Simon Foster didn't really ring like a celebrity. I wanted to be called something exotic. And so when I became a singer, I changed my name to an exotic name. Would you like to know what that was? It's the first time you've looked interested all evening, but I'll <laughs> push past it. I called myself Daniel Dusky. Yes, I know, laugh all you will. <laughs> but in the days of the new romantics, it felt like a very appropriate name to have. But you know, the problem with having two names is you have two identities. And although I had some kind of, you know, uh, career in show business, when I came home to my mother's house, I was always going to be Simon. And usually that word was always associated with that action. So I could be meeting with some so-called celebrities and I'd walk through the door and my mother would have me hoovering and cleaning and all of the things that uh, she knew were part of the family context. And if I ever said, but you know, Simon, the reality is over the years, God has stripped away some of the falsehood around my thinking. God has realigned my mind to believe that my heritage is good. Where I've come from has value. Do you know my, my grandfather was a man of prayer. He would spend four or five hours a day in prayer. My mother was convinced he did it to get away from his wife. But <laughs> I wasn't around so I can't judge that. But I believe that he prayed for each of his grandchildren. And I believe that I'm here today walking with Jesus as a result of his prayer. In each of these cases, these young men were given different names to their truest identity. Now, church, listen to me. That is absolutely what the enemy does regarding our lives. And it's what he's doing with this young generation I'm referring to. Do you know that some of the young men and women that are connected with some of the things that are happening on our streets actually come from Christian homes? They've been brought up in the Pentecostal environment. They've been exposed to some other things and they're standing on street corners involved with whatever they're involved in and their mothers and fathers are heartbroken over what's happening with them with this, the best intentions in the world and the greatest efforts on the parents' behalf. Some of these young people are out involved in things. They are being stolen by an alternative culture and they are being given another name. They are called X, Y, and Z, not child of God, not son of the house, not co-heir with Christ Jesus. They've been given an alternative name. And if you think it through with me, isn't that exactly what the enemy has done to you? When you were born in this world, God had a plan and a purpose for you. And he started to whisper things, not God, the other guy, throughout the course of your life. You'll never be any good at anything. You'll never amount to very much. You're always the loser. You're always the, the one, in my case, that's never chosen for anything. Do you know, I may not have been chosen for anything in school, but I have been chosen by the true and living God. God has handpicked me out of my family to walk with him. I take Great pride in thanking God for that, not in personal pride, but I'm grateful to God for what he's done in my life. And isn't it true that when God calls you, he renames you? He renames you. You may have all kinds of labels stuck to you, but when the Spirit of God hits your heart and life, you start to think differently because God redefines a new reality for you. You are a co-heir with Christ Jesus. 
You are the head and not the tail. You are the first and not the last. God redefines a new reality for you. The enemy is targeting our young people. He's giving them favor and a voice in certain ways. And he's changing their truest identity. In many cases, children from homes that have a spirituality that somehow for them seems an alien concept and they're seeking alternative realities. He is renaming our young people as we sit here. I would have been 15 when I was renamed. I moved from having desires to having realities. I stepped away from an internal world where I was navigating my sexuality into a relationship with a man who was 30. 15, 16 years of age. The minute I crossed that threshold, all of my questioning stopped because suddenly I found something that felt like it fitted what I felt like on the inside. And before I knew where I was, I had repeated experiences in that environment. And every time I had them, they reinforced this new alternative me that actually became my life. When Jesus came into my world at 24, here's the first thing he said to me, apart from reading the Bible, which I did avidly and still do. He said this to me, you are not to call yourself homosexual anymore. Do not refer to yourself as a gay person. Because I would introduce myself and I would say, hello, I'm Simon, not to everybody, please understand, I wouldn't do this to strangers, but I would say, eventually I'd start to disclose my sexuality just to get it out of the way, just to be out and maybe slightly proud of the journey I'd had internally. And God said to me, you are to call yourself son of God. You are to call yourself a child of a king. Now listen to me, that sounds lovely, but when you're introducing yourself to people, it does have some stupid nuances to it. I remember working in a club and this guy came towards me. He was trying to win my affection. And I said to me, oh, I'm sorry, you've mistaken me for somebody else. I am a child of a king. He said, I didn't think they had any kings in Ireland. What part of, <laughs> of Ireland is your father from? <laughs> I said, no, no, the king of kings. I'm a child of Jesus. I belong to God. I mean, it is a great way of warding off any affection. When you start telling people that you're a child of a king, they, they tend to make up their minds fairly quickly that they're out of here as quickly as possible. So we got some parallels here. We've got the enemy, okay, the culture around us, targeting young people. I believe the church should be targeting young people. Our, our endeavor must be in that direction. Why? Because young people are able to shift culture and bring culture to its fullness. Jesus did exactly the same thing. He targeted young people. There were lots of clever people around him, but he chose those that he knew would carry the culture to the fullest extent that they could. We can see that industry does similarly. We can see that the enemy has done that in our city, and we know with clarity that we are awaiting a promise from God that an emerging generation will rise, rabid lovers of Christ, full of fire and passion, carrying the culture of heaven and bringing that culture to the streets of the city of London, washing the streets clean by the precious power of the Holy Spirit. It's important too for us to know that when culture begins to shift, favor needs to be afforded. 
And if we are going to reach out to young people, as I believe we should as a community, we need to start allowing them access to some decision-making. Without that kind of favor, without that kind of blessing on their life, they're not going to grow into the fullness that they have been given by God to be. And we need to stop this segregation between the elderly and the young. We are a family. When I sit at my dining table, my daughter does most of the talking. You wouldn't believe it. You'd think it was me, wouldn't you? She does most of the talking because I want to hear what she thinks about certain things that are happening in our lives. The enemy wants to rename, and we need to rename the young people that come in. You know, when we worked in Bristol, we would work with people with all kinds of brokenness, and they would come and they'd say to me, you know, Pastor Simon, can I speak to you? I'm a drug addict. Now, remember my story. God told me not to refer to myself in my old sense and nature. I would say, that's not true about you. You're not a drug addict. Oh, no, you don't realize I belong to this organization. I'm going through this program. I said, all of that may be true. You may be going to all kinds of groups and working through all kinds of problems, but you weren't born a drug addict. Somehow during the course of your life, this felt like the, the choice to make. Nobody makes those choices in a vacuum, and we need to stop thinking like that, that suddenly somebody wakes up one day and decides to do this. There is a long story attached to many of the decisions that people make. And I say, well, you can refer to yourself whatever you way you want, but I am going to refer to you as somebody who's loved by God. So while they were working that out with me, we would sit sometimes and they'd say, you know, but the thing is, I'm a drug addict. No, no, you're not a drug addict. You're a child who's working out a relationship with God the Father. Yes, that's, that's great, Pastor. I think I get what you mean. And then they carry on talking again. And then about 10 minutes later, you know, but of course I'm an addict. No, you're not an addict. Okay. And even if that were true about you, which I don't believe it's true, you have been incredibly um, educated to become addicted to the presence of God. So we can take a redeeming aspect to what has happened to you. Those who have been given over to addiction actually give themselves wholeheartedly to certain things. And I believe that God can redeem that and people can give themselves wholeheartedly to Christ and wholeheartedly to the purposes of God. Amen? The devil is renaming... <laughs> all the time, because identity is crucial to the cultural advancement of his purposes. And the church, we're living in this incredible, glorious time of opportunity for us to become cultural architects of the future that God would have for his people. I am not paralyzed by what I see in the media. I'm energized. And I'm energized because I believe as we grow clearer in defining darkness and light, we will start to see the church of Jesus Christ rise up in her beauty and in the glory that Christ has deposited in us to see his kingdom come and his will be done. And his will is that this world that we're living in will be affected by his love. 